Hello and welcome to Mythmakers, the podcast from the Oxford Centre from Fantasy. Now, my name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but I'm also the director of the centre. And today I am joined by good friend Richard Blackford, who is a composer. Now, Richard has composed music ranging from pieces for film and TV all the way through to classical pieces composed or commissioned by orchestras and choirs. Now, I want to take you back to the beginning of the friendship between my family and Richard, and that is all to do with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. This is a Simon Armitage poetry version. Uh, and as we are talking at Christmas, I thought I would read you just a little bit to set the story of Sir Gawain, and then Richard can explain where our connection is with this story. It was Christmas at Camelot, King Arthur's court, where the great and the good of the land had gathered, all the righteous lords of the ranks of the round table, quite properly carousing and revelling in pleasure. So that's how Sir Gawain and the Green Knight opens. A Christmas game that goes horribly wrong, so be warned uh, if you're <laughs> preparing to play games over Christmas. So Richard, what is your connection to Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? Explain for the world. Well, I, I came back from studying in Italy um, at the age of about 23 and had no work uh, on, on the stocks at all. And uh, Peter Saunders, who then of course became your father-in-law, uh, phoned up the Royal College of Music and said, is there someone who would be interested in writing a community opera for the village of Blueberry? And my composition professor chose me. I came to Blueberry, met Peter and the designer, various other people involved with the production. And they said, yes, we think that you're the right person for this, this commission. Uh, what would you like to do? I'd always been fascinated by the story of Gawain and the Green Knight, as you say, a Christmas game that goes wrong. And also the whole idea of the knights of, uh, of the court of King Arthur being child size being miniature to the court of Bertilac, alias the Green Knight, who are all giants. And so this seemed to be an ideal opportunity uh, to write something for children and adults to involve the whole village and a large orchestra as well of, uh, of amateur, enthusiastic amateur players. And that was the beginning of my relationship with the village of Blueberry. And here I am all these years later, living still in Blueberry. Yeah, so before we go and talking more about storytelling through music, you did go on from that, from these humble beginnings of community operas to write a piece about Martin Luther King with Maya Angelou as your lyricist mm -hmm. for the second inauguration of President Clinton. So from little acorns, <laughs> great uh, oaks have grown. So thinking about Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, that's a story really beloved by many listeners to this podcast, not least because Tolkien uh, himself was one of the ex world experts on this story and loved it. Mm. Um, you're right to pick up on that word childlike court, because one, if I remember back in my studies, that one of the words used to describe the court of Camelot is childlike. Um, that's the, the this is why it contrasts so well to the the world of the you know the green knight giant and it strikes me that any creative has to have an element of 
childlike play to the way they approach creation. So when you were thinking of how to musically tell that story, where did you, what do you do? How do you come up with your ideas? What's, how do you get your play in music going? If you can remember back, back then, it is a while ago. Yes, well, we're talking about 1978, so it wasn't yeah. exactly yesterday. Uh, and you're right, the Green Knight actually calls, he dismisses the uh, the court of King Arthur as all beardless boys. Yeah. And, so, and so we had a, a troop, a large troop of beardless boys uh, playing uh, at the court of King Arthur. I think one of the things that I love about the story uh, is the fact that it's a journey. It's a journey from the safety uh, and in some ways coziness of the court of King Arthur, where everything is ordered and... Uh, uh, and 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 everything is is welcoming. It's 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 a kind of archetypal Christmas and New Year experience, to an unknown and very bleak world through a, a winter landscape to the Green Chapel, where Gawain has to meet the the Green Knight a year from the day in which he has his axe blow at the Green Knight's head. And as many of your your listeners will will know, the story goes that the Green Knight has his head chopped off and then promptly picks it up and puts it on his, his neck again and then says, right, you've had your blow at me. I'll meet you now uh, a year from now and then I'll have my blow at you. Um, and so I think one of the touching things about the tale is the way in which Gawain is tempted uh, to give up the knightly vows that he's taken by a number of things, by a girdle that will render him invincible, that he should actually conceal to his host, Lord Bertilac, whose castle he, he goes to visit. And then there's some rather interesting advances by Bertilac's wife to him as well, which, which he manages more or less to rebuff. Um, but it shows, I think, it's a story about fallibility. And Gawain doesn't conceal everything. He doesn't conceal the girdle, but the Green Knight forgives him. And I think it's such a touching story that all of us are fallible, even if we like to call ourselves knights in literally shining armour. And uh, But we all fail. And there are kind, good people who forgive our faults. It's a very interesting kind of quest, isn't it? Because he has he has to go on a quest to find the place, this green knight. So that's part of that is, but he also sort of knows he's going to his death. So there's a very, it, it goes from the warmth of the court and the childlike games to this quite adult, cold world. Uh, it's very atmospherically written. It's the only line of um, <laughs> Middle English I can quote is the snore snittered full snart, which is in there, which I always say when it snows. Um, it's got very muscular sort of lovely language describing the, the landscapes. And then you get the adult temptations of the wife approaching him exactly. uh, and the temptation to back, you know, you know, stay in bed, not go out <laughs> and have yeah. your head cut off. Uh, but he does... We're plot spoiling here. I'm sorry, guys, but it has been out for about a thousand years. I think we're allowed to say he does. He does actually come good at the end, and as you say, it's his. The, he's forgiven for his faults, which is a very uplifting message, and probably what it's all heading towards. Yes. yes. So, what do you do with this musically? How, how can you tell stories through music? Uh, well, I suppose there's an, a degree of of. Um 
colour that could be brought to the orchestration for something like a community opera. Uh, you can write for things that you never normally would write for, like we had a, a consort of recorders, we had a consort of guitars, we had a whole group of string players who only played open strings. So you found six or seven year old children just you know, really wholeheartedly playing their open strings in one of the storm sequences. Um, and so um, I think uh, the colours were very important. Oh, we also had tuned wine glasses that, that uh, several people played to make a very strange sound for the court of, of Bertillac and, and the sorceress Morgan Le Fay. Um, so I suppose with Gawain, I started out with the uh, the, the, the list of available people that might be interested in taking part. And from that, I tried to uh, create a, uh, a sound world for that of King Arthur and also for uh, the Green Knight and Bertillac, um, and to, uh, to propel the music dynamically, but at the same time to have some really fun set pieces, the chorus of sprites in the winter that uh, the Beset Gawain and and, uh, and things like that, and the uh, the gift song of Lady Bertillac, where in three verses she tries to tempt him. Um, and so there are, there are some certain musical show pieces, and then there are dances as well. And I think taking my cue from from Monteverdi, who was really the first opera composer, not the very first, but the first successful one. The reason he succeeded where everyone else hadn't succeeded, everyone else was writing everyone else, um, Caccini and Perry, were writing recitative, just sort of spoken um, words set to music. But Monteverdi thought that would be deeply boring. And so he uh, managed to give a wonderful variety. We'll have a chorus, we'll have a dance, we'll have an aria, we'll have a this, we'll have a that. And there's constant variety. And uh, the story of Gawain and the Green Knight really lends itself to that variety of, of musical approaches. So thinking about how music interprets stories, I, I was when I was thinking about what I was going to ask you, it struck me that I'm used to in the world in literature of things being defined by their genre. So if I say, hey, we're going to read a Western, everybody knows where we're going. And if I say we're going to read a horror story, immediately it starts conjuring up images. Whereas when I was looking at how music is classified, it tends to be by period or by composer and then you're down to numbers mm. so you don't really know if you listen to Mozart's piano concerto number four if there is such a thing I'm guessing um if that's going to be a horror one or a um, fantasy one at all it doesn't it doesn't give it a flavor like that mm. so how does fantasy work as a a theme in in the world of classical music is it even recognized as a separate kind of thing that you would do or is it all just lumped together if you're in this world of magic and myth yes well um i, I think that uh that there are uh, sort of two possible answers the first is where you have a music uh, a piece of music with an extra musical idea namely stage dance or text mm -hmm nowadays of course film um, then uh, the music is actually um, either an equal partner or an unequal partner depending on on what the uh, what the project is so whereas your Mozart piano concertos are number one to however many um, all of Mozart's operas uh, have got uh, descriptive titles so the magic flute which is one of the greatest fantasy operas 
that's, uh, you know, of, of all time, um, you know kind of what you're coming to when you when you come to the magic flute because it's it's there in the title and um so on the one hand opera or uh, a dramatic piece will will have a uh, a title which is the label on the tin if you like the journey that you're buying into but then many times composers have written uh, pieces of uh, orchestral music uh, like um, Rimsky-Korsakov, Scheherazade, uh, which is a, another wonderful fantasy from Arabian Nights. And there the orchestra attempts to, um, to, to paint a picture for you uh, of the world of the Arabian Nights and the story of Scheherazade. That's one of many, many examples. Liszt's Faust symphony and the, the Faust legend, for example. I could, I could give you dozens and dozens. And so composers, I think, throughout history, particularly since, I suppose, mid 18th century, have been fascinated by fantasy. And prior to the 18th century, they were fascinated by myth. So if we're not talking so much or narrowing it to fantasy, um, the most popular subjects for operas in the 17th and 18th centuries were, were myths from Ovid um, or Greek myths, Roman myths, um, and uh, they then had their own fantasy settings. I think it strikes me that music's much fairer <clears throat> in the way it handles um, fantasy, because there's still a little bit of um, a sort of raised eyebrow for, for many people who like fantasy. They'll be, and it often is poor, it's a bit like romantic literature. It's, it's often less well regarded than realism, <laughs> whatever that means. Mm -hmm. uh, and people, I think that's why someone like Margaret Atwood tries to redefine it and she calls it um, speculative fiction instead. Yes. Uh, to get away from this bias and it seems to me as though mag the music has never had a problem it's just another place you might go to find a mood or a influence or an inspiration i think you're right but i think depending on the time that you that you lived in uh for example living at the time of of um of freud in vienna and studies in hysteria um that uh the fantasy um projects that came up as a result of, of Freud at that time. I'm thinking particularly of the opera Electra by uh, Richard Strauss is a completely different approach to a Greek myth um, because of because he'd read studies in hysteria and Electra is a hysteric, an identifiable hysteric. Uh, and so is Salome, his setting of the Oscar Wilde play. Um, uh, completely different from uh, settings of of ancient myth beforehand. Um, I was thinking of something else. Oh yes, um, in terms of the, the kind of credibility of, of fantasy as opposed to realism, I think that, that many people believe that uh, fantasy is uh, a metaphor, an important metaphor for um, psychological uh, um, st well, states of mind and, and predicaments that, that human beings find themselves. And when I was uh, writing an opera called Metamorphoses based on Ovid uh, for the centenary of the Royal College of Music, I was incredibly lucky to be working with Lawrence van der Post, the, um, 
the South African writer, who personally knew Jung and had written many essays on Jung. Um, and so uh, the reason that I went to him uh, was because I wanted a Jungian approach to Ovid's metamorphosis, and I wanted insights into archetypal characters. And for me, that was much more interesting than writing a piece set in a, a drawing room with you know somebody with a, a handbag and a real estate problem or whatever it might be. Um, so for me, um, fantasy and myth, I think, uh, are very rich themes in a mind that, that one can delve into uh, to find out truths uh, that are possibly ancient truths, but also to learn about new truths. Yes, here, here, absolutely. Um, so, Richard, the most recent um, piece of yours that I had the privilege to go in here was at the Royal Festival Hall just last month, and that was a very interesting commission which was setting a diary um it was for the bark choir and a member of the choir had had covid very badly at the beginning of the pandemic and was given the diary that was kept of his treatment and recordings of his own things he said during that um and this was handed over to you as a kind of libretto for you to interpret and what i thought was interesting to talk about in this particular piece is um, the way it combines extreme, you can't get more real than being on an ICU ward during the COVID pandemic. Yes. Um, but it also had elements of the dreams that he was having and the hallucinations he was having, which included some, I think, archetypal images of a pear tree and a, I think it was a golden pear, something like that in it. So that, that seems to me like a, a perfect blend in a way because our lives are a mixture of both the, the the very real and the very strange and mythical so tell me tell us a little bit more about that project and how that came about it, it came up very quickly um i was commissioned by the conductor of the bar choir the the musical director david hill and he said i've got these diaries i i know Professor Johnston, who, who had this experience, uh, would you be interested in reading them and seeing if you could write a 16 to 20 minute piece of music? Um, and I looked at the diaries and I thought the answer probably was no, um, because so much of it was entirely clinical nurses saying we had to give you a tracheotomy last night and you're kind of thinking how in a hundred years is, does that set to music and I think it was only as, as I think Julia you were kind of beginning to drive that that only when I discovered the sections where he describes his hallucinations himself um, and he isn't sure if experiences that he's having are real or not um, and especially he has this vision of a garden uh, that he was taken out into a garden uh, where there was a pedestal with hieroglyphs on a very specific image in this garden uh, and it turned out uh, that only months after he had recovered he went back to the hospital for a checkup and uh, he was shown this garden, which he claims he had never been in. Uh, and for a mathematician to, to, to fess up to having had an out-of-body experience, which defies rational explanation, was very hard for him. Um, but uh, the overwhelming feeling he had when he came back and was given these diaries, uh, which the nurses had kept, and which he had also, even in his hallucinations, um, given entries to, uh, was of love and gratitude to these people who, as he said, just saw me as a bundle of symptoms. And, um, and he realised as soon as he was 
out of the ICU, then someone else was coming in and they would give the same unstinting sacrifice to their and danger to their lives and care to look after the next person and the next and the next. So contrasting that to the 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 enthusiastic amateurs where you started with the Sagawin and the Green Knights, um, when you've got the Bach choir and an orchestra, that's a very different set of tools in your composer's toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, so could we have a little bit look at sort of the what I think you've I often think in terms of being a writer, you know, how you sit down and tackle a subject and break it down into aspects and then think of a storyline going through that. What I picked up as a lay person listening to this is that you start using your orchestra to mimic the sound, the very real sounds of the uh, the hospital ward with the beeping yeah. machines. Yeah. So we're very much in a, the real world and you've got the choir singing the names Yes. I mean, it was extremely moving because not only were they singing the names in the audience were some of these people, which is just so special, mm. uh, of the people giving the care. Mm. But it, how do you transition musically from that world of the, the loss and the real sounds of an ICU into your garden, which is a place of hallucination and healing? It yes, had an very... element of healing. Um, so obviously you're going to head in more lyrical direction. So how do tell us this? I'm telling I'm speaking too much here. Tell us from your point of view as a composer what you're doing there, making the building blocks to get you to your destination. Well, part of the brief was that it would be only a string orchestra. I say only a string orchestra. It was the Philharmonia, one of the best string orchestras in the world. Uh, and they can play pretty much anything you put in front of them. So I decided to, to begin it and end the piece uh, with this strange texture, sort of almost a wheezing texture with the double basses making strange harmonic noises uh, and clicking sounds, uh, almost like machines. So knowing that that's where I was starting and where I was going, I then had to try to find, as I think you were implying, Julia, the lyrical heart of the piece, which was first of all the fantasy about the garden and then his real visit to the garden much later on. And because however hard I tried, uh, the text was very prosaic. Um, mm. it, it's, this is not poetry, uh, and it was never intended as poetry. I hit on an idea, which is while the baritone who plays the part of, of Professor Johnson uh, sings, uh, there would be in the fantasy garden an obligato viola solo, a highly lyrical instrument playing against the more declamatory uh, music of of the baritone and so the viola is actually taking you out of the prosaic world and into the world of poetry and then finally when he's healed and goes to see the garden the viola's music is transformed and then played on a on a solo violin so it's related to it but it's it's become something different oh that's so beautiful and i believe that you've recorded this piece haven't you now so if people wanted to follow up and listen to it, when is it likely to be um, more generally available? Well, I've just approved the second edit uh, with the record company and it should be out in February of next year. OK, right. So put, put that in the diary, everybody. <laughs> so we've talked about starting afresh with the subject, be it something, a story that already exists or interpreting material you're given. What about when you're working with a filmmaker and you're being asked to provide the 
the heart and the soul of a piece. Because if you think of famous fantasy films, often the very best of them have the most splendid tracks. And actually what you think of the images along with the music. Mm -hmm. So you've got, is getting it wrong can kill a film, I'm sure. What, what, what's I'm your role of doing? Uh, how, do you, how do you go about that collaboration? Well, uh, it happens in different ways with different directors. Sometimes I've worked with directors who've been musically very savvy and sometimes they have no idea and they look to me to actually provide some ideas as to the role that the music is going to play. And for a director, giving up their film to uh, a composer is a big deal. It's like giving up your baby to somebody who you don't really know to say, bring him or her up, look after it. Um, and as you rightly say, I saw a film the other day, which I shan't mention its title, which was a really decent film and it was killed stone dead by the music. So it can be got terribly wrong. On the other hand, an indifferent film can actually be made by the score as well. It can be rescued. Uh, and um, I've been asked several times, literally, by the producer to, to rescue his film because it's, it's in trouble. This was some TV films that I did. Um, so where do you start? Um, I suppose music for film, uh, and particularly for fantasy, has got several possible roles to play. Uh, it can be descriptive, uh, it can help or hinder the tempo of the film, it can speed up the mood of the film, depending on how the film is cut. And very often, if uh, a producer says, ah, this whole sequence has been cut too slowly, the music can compensate by increasing the tempo of it. Um, but much more interestingly than some of those technical things, music can actually provide subtext. It can provide layers informa of information that is not what you actually see on screen. So a sort of idiotic example is, you know, the, the hero and the heroine are saying, I love you, I'll never stop loving you. Um, but underneath is some very subverting kind of sinister music, which obviously makes you think something's going to go wrong. Um, and that's obviously an example that no one would ever dream of doing. But the idea of subtext is, is very exciting indeed. I, I think everyone must have this experience of if you're watching something that has a scary moment in it, if I'm finding it too scary, I take the sound off. Because then you've just got someone walking through a house. But if you play the soundtrack with it, I was watching, um, there's a new film with Sandra Bullock called The Un Unforgivable, which is a very interesting film about um, somebody who is has just come out of prison after having killed a law officer there's mm. a moment when she's going towards the house i thought oh this is going to go horribly wrong so i muted the sound <laughs> and it was perfectly watchable <laughs> with the sound i would be behind the sofa that's like paying to go on the big dipper and keeping your eyes closed the whole oh, time completely completely i'm a real scaredy cat when it comes down to it but uh, but i think possibly if, if i can answer your question with a, a, a specific uh, example mm. The most fascinating um, films that I did was Fingersmith. Um, your, your, yes, your, Sarah Waters' book. Sarah Waters, I'm sure, will be known to, to many of your viewers. Um, and um, I said, am I allowed to give a spoiler about what the uh, the plot? Yeah, yeah, it's been out <laughs> enough time now. Yeah, I think it has. Yes, so uh, it's told from the perspective of one of the characters, and then you realise half of the way through the the narrator changes, and you realise that the first character has actually been telling you a load of lies for the whole of the first 150 pages that you've invested your trust 
in this character. And then you're not sure who's telling the truth. Was Is it the second narrator or the first? So the director, Ashley Walsh, the brilliant Irish director, said uh, that you have got to dupe everybody with the music and give them information that makes us believe this about about this character and this and this and this and this. And then halfway through, we're going to pull the rug out under their feet and we're going to realise that, that they've been led up the garden path. And that was such a, a fun project to do, actually literally manipulating your audience uh, in the nicest possible way. Yeah, well, it's it's for the it's totally justified by the context there, isn't it? You're yes. part of the storytelling. Exactly. Yes. So, so, thinking of all the famous fantasy films that have been out uh, over the last five, six decades, is there any particular soundtracks that you think stand out musically as part of the storytelling? Um. Well, I suppose if you allow Westerns to be part of fantasy, which I think they are. Is, is, <laughs> and Go I ahead like, and, and, and make your pitch. We'll, we'll, we'll decide. Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, Sergio Leone, with score by Ennio Morricone, is one of the most extraordinarily imaginative films, uh, particularly with the use of uh, whistling. One, one of the cowboys has a theme that he's always whistling, which is so sinister. So very often you you hear the whistle uh, without even seeing the character and you have this sort of creepy feeling that something is, mm. going, is going to happen. Um, that's brilliant. Uh, there are obvious examples like Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings, uh, which is just a wonderful, rich, warm fantasy score, as you'd expect. Um, Cinema Paradiso is possibly, you could regard that as a fantasy film, again, by Ennio Morricone, who I was very privileged to work with on a feature film called City of Joy. He wrote half the score and I wrote the other half. Um, and um, Cinema Paradiso is is all about literally a young boy's, young mm. child's fantasy. I'm sure many of your viewers know it. And living in the wonderful escape of the fantasy world of the cinema um, in Italy. So, um, once again, Morricone, because he's a brilliant tunesmith, can create melodies that span huge arcs of the film and have such nostalgia and such sweetness. And he characterises by melody, uh, whereas many other composers don't have that gift. And they characterise by a heavy brass section or lots of percussion or strong rhythms. But Morricone is a genius with melody. Have you ever been part of a project where you've been handed on a sort of key key signature tune? So I'm thinking of the Harry Potter sequence, which began with the John Williams music, but mm. then they changed. I think Patrick Doyle did quite a few of them. Some yes. other composers involved as well. Yes. Uh, so he's inherited a kind of style which he's had to then reinterpret. Mm -hmm. I mean, the films also change in tone as well. So he he is given more room. Um, but have you ever had to do that where you take on an existing tune and no it's it's, it's never happened uh, it's just just the way the, the cookie crumbles yeah I've, I've had to do that as a writer where I've been asked to write something in a in an existing scheme and it's it's quite it's an interesting challenge because you're you're sort of wearing other people's clothes to a certain extent yes. and then, but trying to walk out as if they're yours yes um 
So, I, I've, yeah. I've definitely quoted things before. Um, for example, Wild Mountain Time, uh, a beautiful German adaptation of a Rosamund Pilcher story, mm -hmm. uh, uh, her, her novel of the same name, uh, Wild Mountain Time. Um, and so uh, we had to have the, the folk tune and I loved it so much. I did loads of variations of it and then sort of turned it inside out. Um, so perhaps that's likely what you're talking about. Yes, musically. yeah. So we always end our podcast with asking our guest, where is the best place in a fantasy world to go for something? Uh, we've done uh, forests and hospitals. Well, it's the best place to be ill was one of them. <laughs> um, but in your honour, I thought we would do, where is the best place to be a composer? This is not the performing side of it. It's being the composing side of it. Mm -hmm. So you can put yourself into any fantasy context from the beginning of storytelling to the present day. Have you got an answer for me, Richard? Uh, I've got a place in mind, but I'm not sure I'm obeying the rules that it's a fantasy place because it's a real place, although I could turn it into an unreal place. So I've always loved uh, cathedrals and especially cloisters. For some reason, I've always been attracted to cloisters. And my favourite cloister in the world is um, Monreal in the uh, incredible cathedral in Palermo in Sicily. And I think um, I've, I've visited it two or three times and literally walking around and round and round for hours on end, that, that cloister in some ways has been a, a wonderful release of all sorts of good creative thoughts, as have many other cloisters. So I think if I'm allowed to have that one, that would be it. But otherwise, I'd create a fantasy cloister, probably Gothic, and um, with a lovely tree and a fountain in the middle of it. You could probably sneak yourself into many, many a fantasy trilogy or out there that's set in these worlds. I'm sure it's uh, you know a familiar location. I thought of this. I've got sort of one silly one and, and one serious one. So my serious one is... Um, the Name of the Wind by Patrick Rofus, which Patrick Rofus, which has a real emphasis on music making in it. Yes. Uh, so that's a, a serious place to be a composer. But mm. I then did think it might be quite fun to be the composer who provides the music for the bar scene in Star Wars, <laughs> uh, in the first of the films that were made with the, mm. uh, you know, that mm. very famous, um, weird but spacey music I thought well, wouldn't it be nice to be the guy out the back with the alien head and the nose who's actually composing that music for the the jazz band to play I imagine they're actually doing a bit of their own riffs if we did but know the culture yes. Yes. so the composer for that for that bar would be a great fun place to be and you know have a perspective on the universe <laughs> it certainly would I've often wondered what music might be like 500 years from now or on a different planet and I, I always love that scene in Star Wars I, I know the one you mean yeah so there was so much more to talk about Richard but thank you so much for letting us think a little bit about storytelling through music and your relationship between the, the telling of fantasy stories and the world of cinema and TV composing and so thank you for being with us and thank you everyone for listening. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Julia. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. 
Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.